Aloha, this is Ben Pregnow, and you're listening to the weekend teaching from Hope Chapel in Kihei, Maui. True life. Do you remember that? It's been a minute. It's a verse-by-verse study of the gospel of John. And what's so unique about the book of John, it's actually the only book in the Bible that focuses exclusively on the last three years of the life of Christ on this earth. And why this is so important today is that with all the advancements of mankind, I mean, we got private space travel. We got the internet, we got all kinds of medical advancements, all kinds of crazy technology, AI. With all that, no one has ever improved upon the moral teaching of Jesus Christ. And the book of John has been called God's love letter to the world. Because in it, we see clearly the person, the mission, and the message of Jesus. And so whenever you study a book of the Bible, you want to understand the the writer's purpose for writing. And we've been given that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, the key word in the book of John used 98 times is believe. And notice John does not call them miracles. They're miracles, but he calls them signs. And he preferred the word signs. Why? Think about what a sign does. It points to something. And in this case, it points to someone And John clearly states the twofold purpose for writing that that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and then that by believing, we may have life in his name. Now, uh, we have Mike and Laura Bagby back for a month. They are longtime members and missionaries of our church, and I had Mike and Laura come and share with our staff at our meeting on Friday, and in particular for some of the interns that hadn't had the opportunity yet just to hear a little bit of their story. And he was talking about this idea of the life that Jesus says, abundant life, adventure. He said, you know, you define adventure, you look it up in the dictionary, adventure is risk and remarkable experience. He says, I left Hope Chapel in 1983, what I thought was a two-week mission trip down to Nicaragua and Honduras to serve some refugees, and it's been 37 years. And now 1,600 children along the Rio Coco River in the jungles of Nicaragua have received a Christian education for the last 37 years because he said yes to a two-week mission trip. You see, there's a remarkable experience about the abundant life that Jesus offers. And Jesus himself described it in John 10.10, said, I came to give life and give it abundantly. And so the purpose is that we believe in Jesus and experience this abundant life. So why do so many people miss out on this abundant life? They don't believe. You see, what you believe dictates the nature 
and the quality of your life. And Jesus said, by believing in me, you would have life. And so for those of you that are still seeking, investigating the Bible and, and faith in Jesus, I am so glad that you're here. And I can't think of a better time to join in on this study, although we only have two weeks left. But you don't have to go through life wondering about your purpose, worried about the future, struggling, trying to escape the guilt, the shame, maybe mistakes, things that you've done, maybe things that have happened to you that you had no control over. You know, God says, I love you, I chose you, I forgive you, you're my daughter, you're my son, nothing you've done or could ever do will keep me from loving you. I have a plan for your life, and I want you to understand not only my great love for you, but your great need for me. And so how do you respond to such incredible news? Believe. And so we're at the end of our study. In fact, we're going to finish it next week. And these next two weeks, I have to warn you, are going to be a Bible survey and study so that we can get through the end of chapter 21 by then. But I love what our friend Randy Alcorn says. He says, great stories need excellent beginnings and endings to give meaning to their middles. God's story is the greatest story ever told and the prototype of all redemptive stories. You see, the end of our story for the believer in Christ gives meaning to all the pain and the trials and the tribulations in the middle. And I'm calling the message today, God's purposes in a world of pain. And today we are getting into the middle of chapter 18 and all through chapter 19, we read about Jesus being handed over and tried, sentenced, and crucified, one of the most powerful themes that we see is, is this unjust, cruel, evil, I mean the most torturous execution that's undeserved, yet God was in control. You know, I've recognized something in my life. The more I try and control, the more out of control things seem to get. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The more you try and control, the more out of control things seem to get. And in today's text, we are confronted with the reality of the sovereignty and surrender, this idea of sovereignty and surrender. And here's the big idea. It's that God is in control, and the only way that I can fully experience his peace is through surrender. And that means even when things seem to be at their worst, that God's in control, that maybe whatever you're going through right now, you know, when things are going horribly, it's when I need to re repeat to myself, God, you are in control. God, you're in control. You're working. Because this belief will bring you peace that can be found nowhere else. So you guys ready for a Bible study? Open your Bible, the Bible app, to John chapter 18. We'll be starting in verse 28, and I want to begin with prayer, so bow your hearts with me. God, we thank you for your word, and I just thank you for this church family, and God, how you are here, you're working. There's so much we don't understand, but we feel your presence and your peace and your power. 
And so we ask, Holy Spirit, right now that you'd fall afresh, that you would open our hearts, our eyes, and our minds to all that you have. That you'd bring comfort, Lord, to those that are in desperate need, Lord, of a touch from you. God, that you'd bring conviction to the areas of our lives where we know we need to make a change, that, that God, your Holy Spirit would empower us to make those changes, and that you would give us in this place as your people one heart and one mind, as your people, Lord, to do your will. Here we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we have got a lot to go through, so open your Bibles and buckle your seatbelt, okay? John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So what do you want me to release to you, the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. You know, the record of Jesus' trial and his execution actually brings encouragement and optimism to those who live in a world that at times appears to be in chaos. I mean, how can God possibly be in control when there's just so much evil and injustice and suffering? Well, we can look no further than the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's so much here that we can learn to have this kind of assurance and confidence that God is in control, that there's nothing that's a surprise to God. You know, we as people make mistakes. Now, some of us make real big ones. 
but you can never spiral out of His control. And Jesus faced six trials, three Jewish and three Roman, and the charge in the Jewish trials was blasphemy. And the trials in the Roman courts was treason. And this is the most corrupt trial and judgment in human history. John records several of the illegal details of this religious trial. It was held at night. Uh, Jesus was assumed guilty. The court hired false witnesses to testify against him. Jesus was mistreated well-bound. And the authorities did not allow Jesus a defense. But Jesus doesn't cry mistrial. He, he demands no appeal. And in this, we see how to bear up under suffering that's unjustly imposed. I mean, his key is trust. And it's not a trust in the legal system. It's not a trust in a religious institution. But in him who judges righteously. I mean, what are the trials, the persecutions that you're going through right now? Maybe a friend has betrayed or deserted you. Maybe someone's lying about you. There's indescribable loss, what seems like something that was not deserved. You see, you look to the Father. He sees you. He knows you. says He judges righteously, and He will not let this injustice go on forever. But you need to notice how this all starts back in verse 28. It says, then, speaking of the Jewish leaders, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. They believed you were defiled to go into the home or interact with a Gentile at that time, and you can't miss this ugly realization of just how far being a legalist and a hypocrite will take you. I mean, the Jewish leaders on a quest to murder an innocent man stop in the middle of that to observe the law and avoid being ceremonial unclean for the Passover. You know, there's such a strong warning in here for us today. I mean, don't put on appearances at church and then go live like hell the rest of the week. Don't polish and shine the exterior if what you're doing is just feeding the greed and the pride and the anger and the lust and nurturing it on the inside. It says God looks at the inside. He looks at the heart. It says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And you want to be someone who cares about the inside, not playing some religious game. And Pilate asks for the accusation, and they can't come up with anything, and they want to peer pressure Pilate into a crucifixion. And, and part of this is they think that this would forever prove that Jesus was a false prophet, because in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so they want to see Jesus cursed of God. And what they completely miss is that Jesus is actually fulfilling God's word and prophecy before their very eyes. And that Jesus had been doing this his entire life on earth, fulfilling all the prophets, and, and they should have caught it, and each one pointed to the fact that he, in fact, was the Messiah. 
And I have a PDF of 351 of the Old Testament prophecies that are hundreds and hundreds of years before the life of Christ, and then the New Testament reference showing that fulfillment of the prophecy. So, we have no time for that right now, but if you want to do a hardcore Bible study, I'll send you a copy. Email me at ben at hopechapelmaui.com, and I'll send you this, I believe it's 12-page PDF, and you can do your own Bible study and see that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. But the mathematical probability that a person could fulfill just eight of the 351 prophecies, a guy by the name of Josh McDowell wrote a book and he calculated the odds and it's one to the 1017th or a one followed with 17 zeros are the odds that one person could fulfill just eight of the 351 prophecies. But, but to, to help us get a better understanding of this probability of just fulfilling eight of the 351 prophecies, he calculated that it's like if you took the state of Texas, anyone from Texas here this morning? All right. Cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Mark just one of them with an X. Grab some random person and have them drop that coin anywhere in the state of Texas at any depth, up to two feet. Then pick some other random guy, give him a blindfold, send him anywhere in the state of Texas, and on the first try, he needs to pick the dollar marked X. Those are the odds of just fulfilling eight of the 351 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But he filled them all. And so he's standing, Jesus is standing before Pilate. The evidence has been overwhelming that he is who he says he is. And Pilate's an interesting guy. I did a little research on him. You know, his career, his life was one of an opportunist. Like a crooked politician, he's kind of known for the backhanded deals and stealing and just turning things, whatever would bring him the most power and popularity. Kind of like today, isn't it? And what's interesting, in Matthew's account in chapter 27, before Jesus appears before Pilate, Pilate's wife has a dream about Jesus and warns her husband, says, Pilate, have nothing to do with this Jesus because he's innocent. And Pilate faces the biggest dilemma of his life, and what a contrast. Jesus, the spiritual king, Pilate, the material king, one would do anything to receive power, honor, and glory. The other gave up his glory. One lived for the comfort and the riches of the here and now. The other taught that we're to store up treasures in heaven. One ruled by manipulation and brutality, and the other by truth. One was dressed in royal robes. And Isaiah says the other had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. It, it doesn't look like or strive for or fight for the things of this world. And in this moment, Pilate is faced with the decision to choose between these two kingdoms. But as a governor, he's worried about the threat of another kingdom. And so when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he didn't mean that it had nothing to do with this world. He means that it didn't originate here. It didn't start here. And the same is true for today that the kingdom starts inside the hearts and minds of God's people were changed from the inside out. Jesus descended from heaven and seeks to bring 
the kingdom of heaven, the principles and methods of heaven into all areas of human activity. But many people throughout Christian history have misinterpreted the kingdom of God in in its earthly terms. It's as old as the Crusades. And it's as new as all who believe they can speed up the pace in ushering in the kingdom. Jesus said, listen, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. But they don't. Because my kingdom is not of this world. And so, what do my followers do? We sacrifice. We serve. We surrender. We suffer all for the kingdom of God. I think sometimes we can look at this story and pile it and forget that each one of us is faced with this same decision. Are we going to live for the success, the money, the power, the popularity of man, live for self? Or are we going to live for the glory of God? See, one leads to an abundant life, adventure, filled with risk, rewarding experiences, and the other leads to self-destruction. You know what's interesting? Pilate chose self, and historians report that just a few years after Jesus' trial, Pilate himself committed suicide. You know, Roman law required three things, an indictment, the accusers and the witnesses, and the opportunity for the accused to give a self-defense. And Pilate saw that there wasn't much of a case, and he's trying to shift the responsibility, and he doesn't want to make a judgment. He's trying to suggest that they let Jesus go according to their own tradition, which was a tradition at the Passover that one prisoner would be set free as a symbolic act to remember God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And they shout, no, 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 Barabbas, and they release the robber. I mean, have you ever been in a position where you knew right from wrong and you were too afraid to make a stand for what was right? Chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. But when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. 
Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And what we see here, the Lamb of God, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is ready to become the sacrifice for mankind's sin at the Passover. Continues on in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, Jesus literally experienced every person's death, every person's hell while on the cross. And he says he, he hung in the center between two criminals. There's a lot of symbolism here. That Jesus is the one that's centered between God and man. That Jesus on the cross took all the punishment our sin deserved. That on the cross, he was both the priest and the offering. That he was centered in all God's history and work. That the cross of Christ is at the center, the focal point of world history. In fact, it's how we mark time to this day, B.C. and A.D., and the sign affixed above Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was written in Hebrew or Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Pilate wanted this statement regarding Jesus to be as public as possible. 
And this is also an unknowing prophecy of how the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, reigning as King, would be published to every nation and language, that it was from the beginning intended as a global message for all people. In Aramaic or Hebrew for the Jews and the locals, in Latin for the officials, in Greek, the language of the Eastern Mediterranean world, one commentator said in Hebrew and Aramaic for the Jews who gloried in the law, for the Greeks who gloried in wisdom, and for, in Latin, for the Romans who most gloried in dominion and power, that Jesus of Nazareth is king of all these people. It says after this in verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, scientists tell us that thirst is actually the most agonizing of all pain that you can experience at its extreme. I mean, you can pinch a nerve, you can receive some kind of bodily wound. Something can be going on in your body causing you tremendous pain. But at the extreme, nothing is more terrible to bear than the pain of extreme thirst. That every cell in your body cries out for relief and the pain gets worse and worse as the time goes by. And John records that Jesus cried out, I thirst. And that it was only because it was necessary to fulfill the Scripture, which means that had it not been required by God to fulfill, that Jesus would have even borne this extreme pain without a single word of complaint, but in order to faithfully do what God had said should be done, our Lord revealed his anguish by crying out, I thirst. And so after receiving the sour wine, Jesus then says, it's finished. The Greek word here, tetelestai, it means to bring to a close, to finish, to end. It means paid in full. And this word was used by servants when a task had been completed. It was used by priests when a sacrificial animal was found to be worthy. It was used by farmers when they found that perfect specimen born into their flock. It was used by artists when the final touches had been applied to a masterpiece. It was used by businessmen when the deal had been struck and both parties were satisfied and used by merchants when the debt was paid in full. It's finished. You see, the price for our redemption from sin was paid in full by our Lord's death. Accomplished. All the prophecies fulfilled. Sacrifices and ceremonies of the priesthood no longer needed. The satisfaction of God's justice was finished, and the power of Satan's sin and death was done. And you need to remember and recall Jesus' words back in John chapter 10 when he says, you know, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself because I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. And that's why it says, after he says, I thirst, and then it's finished, it says, then Jesus gave up his spirit. No one can take Jesus' life from him. And in a manner unlike any other human being that lived on this earth, he gave up his spirit because death could have no hold over the sinless son of God. But he stood in our place, taking on the sin of the world, never sinned himself. But he could not die unless he gave up his spirit. And it says in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may, might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may Believe. John wants us to understand that Jesus really died. It dispels a theory that he only swooned on the cross or the body was put in the tomb and just kind of in a coma and the cool, coolness of the tomb was revived and came back out again. And notice John's even careful here to take an oath, a solemn vow that when the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus, his blood, which already separated into the plasma and the hemoglobin, poured out together. That only happens when the circulation is stopped and death has occurred. Then it says in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and take away, to take away the body. And then Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And if you've been tracking in our study earlier, you'll remember these two secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they were afraid to confess Jesus in front of the Jews while he was alive. But in his death, they go to Pilate and ask for his body. And Nicodemus, at great expense, gathers these burial spices, and they lovingly wash the body of Jesus. They wrap it with a cloth. They intersperse the spices. They prepare him for burial, and his burial fulfilled prophecy. I mean, Jesus said that he, like Jonah, would be buried away for three days. It had to be fulfilled. The burial demonstrated that Jesus was dead, proof of the glory of the coming resurrection. 
And no one's going to tell Joseph and Nicodemus that Jesus didn't really die, having wrapped his body and anointed it with oils. And all of this to prove that at the cross, Jesus defeated not only sin, but also death. And you need to notice their location in verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. The Bible records that sin began in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And I'm sure John has this in mind as he records that sin met its conqueror in the garden. That there where Jesus entered into death, he also conquered sin. I love how this one commentator put it. The fall of the first Adam took place in a garden. And it was in a garden that the second Adam redeemed mankind from the consequences of Adam's transgression. See, everything that God did pointed to this day when Jesus would lay down his life on the cross. And since the dawn of time, when man sinned in the Garden of Eden and God killed an animal to cover their nakedness, Genesis chapter 3, death and suffering and bloodshed were always a part of mankind's coming to the Lord. We see it in Genesis chapter 4 when Abel brought a lamb to be offered. In Genesis chapter 8 when Noah offered a sacrifice after the flood. In Exodus chapter 12, when the children of Israel killed the Passover lamb at the Exodus, on the Day of Atonement, when the lambs were killed to make atonement for the people. And what we see is the blood that was shed for thousands of years, I mean, if it was all put together, it would run like this vast river if it was all collected to flow together. But all of this bloodshed and all this death and suffering saved nobody that all the blood and all the death did one thing. It merely rolled the sins of the one offering of the sacrifice ahead for a period of time. It withheld the judgment of God because the person offering the sacrifice did so in the knowledge that a more complete sacrifice was coming one day. And so Old Testament believers were saved by faith, just like we are today, but they were saved by looking forward to the promised Messiah who would die for sins. We're saved by looking back to the promised Messiah who did die for our sins. And so while the Old Testament sacrifices did nothing to remove the sins of the people, the death of Jesus on the cross did everything to deal with our sin issue forever. And so everything God requires to make men and women righteous and to take away their sins now is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. But I know sometimes you and I, we struggle with guilt we have a hard time accepting that our debt is, has been paid in full. We punish ourselves because we think we maybe deserve just a little bit of punishment. You know, one of the saddest things I heard is one of my friends, the days after the fire, in eight days treated 300 patients from Front Street all the way up Lahaina Luna Road with all kinds of burns, smoke exhaustion, broken ankles. 
And he said he couldn't believe how many people told him that they believed that the fire was judgment from God and that they deserved it. You know, it's especially tough when it's maybe a sin that we repeat over and over and over again. But you know, when Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were still in the future? All of them. I mean, did Jesus pay for all of your sins or just part of them? It says he paid at one time in full. Hebrews chapter 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for what? All time. See, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. You know, it's easy to trust God with your life when you think God's making all the right decisions. Everything's going your way. But God's desire is that we trust him and surrender to his sovereignty, willing to trust our lives into his hands, even when we're questioning what's going on, when we don't understand why. And right now, I want you to give a warm welcome to my friend Camille to come up and share a bit of her story with us. Good morning. I'm so excited to be able to share this story of God's goodness through my heartache. Um, so in the summer of 2002, I fell in love with God through reading the book of John, of all things. Um, I also fell in love with my husband, Tori, that same year. We were both babies in the faith, and by God's grace, we had our first kiss on our wedding day in May of 2004. Um, our first child, Crash, was born four years later in 2009. And our second child, Zion Asher Sky, <clears throat> excuse me, Zion was born four years later <clears throat> in July of 2013. Eight days before Christmas that same year, he was suddenly diagnosed with a rare disease. He was rushed to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and he passed away six days later. It was completely out of the blue, and as you can imagine, it devastated us. And I'll always remember just the horror and the shock of walking out of that hospital that night without him. But it was through the pain of that loss that God did what I think was impossible. So I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and at that time in my life, I hadn't dealt with it and I hadn't healed from it. I had never really done the healing work that needed to be done. I didn't have any idea how deeply that wound was affecting every part of my life. 
Now, I had been a Christian for 11 years at that time, but I wasn't walking in victory. I felt defeated. I felt miserable. I was a prisoner to the fear and the shame that accompanies that kind of a wound. I longed for deep relationships from the women in my church, but I was too afraid to be open and vulnerable with them. I was consumed with the fear of judgment from other people and the shame of not being good enough for God. I wondered where that inexpressible joy was that I was supposed to have and where that abundant life was. I was caught between the true love of Jesus and the fear and the shame that occupied the deepest parts of me. I didn't know it at the time, but I really hated myself. I was so ashamed of that little broken girl inside of me. God's perfect love had rescued me and called me to him, but it couldn't dwell in the most wounded places of my soul because other lies reigned there. The lie that I was utterly alone, the lie that I was completely unlovable, the lie that I was worthless, that I was trash. That's what I actually believed deep in my soul. And I didn't think anything could ever change it. The loss of Zion just broke me in half. It brought my whole world to a catastrophic stop. But it was that stop and that brokenness that allowed God into the buried places that I couldn't reach. I remember once, several weeks after the memorial service, I was sitting on my sofa and I was sinking into a depression. And I was kind of mad at God and I said, where are you? Like, sometimes I just can't feel you with me. And I remember he replied to me. He said, Camila, I am always, always at the bedside of your wounded heart. And he gave me this vision of my heart languishing on a bed in an ICU. And he was right there next to it, holding its hand. And he said, when you can't feel me, it's because you leave the room you can't take the pain. You don't want to deal with your heart, but I will never, ever leave you. And I knew he was right. I had been running from my own pain my whole life. I didn't want to deal with my heart. It was too scary. And he taught me to meet him there in that room, to take his hand and to trust him. He showed me that even in my darkest hour, he would never leave me. I was at my worst going through the grief of losing Zion and dealing with the trauma of my past. But he just sat down in my despair and he loved me right there. He let me cry all the tears I had never cried and scream the screams I had never screamed. He didn't tell me to stand up and suck it up and be strong and okay, it's been a few months, you need to get back into your life. No, he spoke to me in the deepest pain and he forever destroyed the lie that I was utterly alone. He led me to a great ministry called Celebrate Recovery, which we have here. He led me to therapy, and he loved me back to life. He reunited me with that little lost girl and taught me to love her. And he showed me that that girl, the one I had spent my whole life trying to hide and being ashamed of, for all of her wounds and all of her weaknesses and all of her failures and vulnerabilities, she was the one that he had loved all along. And even though I had been saved in 2002, 
It wasn't until 12 years later, in the midst of this tragedy, that that little girl was converted. He taught me to seek his face every day and feel the comfort of his presence every moment and to call on him through all the moments of my day. And as I learned to, I began to see that he was filling up that gaping hole inside of me that I didn't think anything could ever fill. He became my peace in the storm. His perfect love truly drew out my fear and shame. And I was finally able to stand confidently and say, I didn't deserve that abuse. That shame isn't mine, and it never was. I could finally stand in the truth of God's word and fully believe that I am who he says I am, forgiven, redeemed, holy, and dearly loved. I can embrace my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities, and I can share them boldly because I am not defined by them. I am God's precious daughter, clothed in his glory. And there is nothing that can separate me from his love. Three days before Zion passed on when he was in the hospital, God gave me this vision of Jesus calming with a fury, riding on horses, riding on clouds, dressed in white, coming with an army. And he said, I'm coming in three days. And I took that to mean he was going to save Zion. And I was like, I believe you. I have full faith. <clears throat> but I misunderstood. And it was only years later that God showed me that that vision was for me. He was coming to save me. He came to break my chains and to shatter every lie the enemy had planted in my heart. He came to hold me when I couldn't stand and to heal every wound. Now I know that Zion's in heaven waiting for me. My husband and I take great comfort knowing that he's not suffering anymore. But I would not have written my story this way. I would not have allowed my son to die or for my family to experience that. But thank God I'm not the writer of my story, because I wouldn't be standing here today with the true hope of Christ. He knows what he's doing, and he writes the best stories. God did sacrifice his son for me. Jesus was willing to die for me, because he knew the great victory to come. So I see the momentary, but he writes the eternal. And now I get to walk in freedom. I'm no longer a slave to fear and shame, and I'm rooted and established firmly in the love of Christ. I am filled with that inexpressible joy that eluded me for so long. God is my security. He is my peace. I run to him in my heartache, and I find him in my heart room every day, forever holding my hand. In the midst of my tragedy, he showed up. He spoke, he moved, he conquered, and he healed. And he set this captive free. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Camilla. See, it says that God demonstrated his great love for you and for me. That yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And reflecting on Jesus' sacrifice, one commentator said these words. He said, all the scheming, all the flogging, all the spitting and the beating with rods, all the mockery, the abandonment by his friends, the thorns in his head, all the nails in his hands and feet, and the sword in his side, the weight of the sins of the world, all of it according to God's plan. And in other words, None of the evil took God by surprise, and it was appointed for his son, and it was to show the depth of his love for us, his people. See, God's purposes in a world of pain will always be to demonstrate his love for you by saving us from our sins, by taking whatever you've gone through, whatever's happened to you, whatever you've done, and to use it and to take it to transform you into the image of Christ and to fill you with hope as you walk through this world full of pain till the day that you would meet Jesus face to face. Let's bow our hearts and pray together. God, we thank you it says, by your stripes, by your wounds, we are healed. Maybe you've never come to that point of decision to place your faith, to believe. Says if you'd confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And some of you need to make that decision right now. There's no need to hide. There's no need to carry the guilt, the shame, the weight of poor decisions or the pain of what's been inflicted upon you beyond your control. Say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Go ahead, from your heart or out loud, he knows. Jesus, I need you in my life. Please forgive me for all of my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying for all my sin. And today, I ask you to come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior. Thank you for your love for me. I just want to spend the rest of my life loving you. And if you pray that prayer, you're his. It says he seals you with his Holy Spirit. There's nothing that can take you out of the hand of God. And Father, I think of all of my brothers and sisters, this beautiful church family, Hope Chapel, that you've given to me, that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The only one that says, this work that I've established in your life, I'll bring it to completion. And so, Lord, we don't know what lies ahead, but we know that your power and your presence and your promises are enough for us. 
And so we just recommit our lives to serving you, to living for your glory, to using us as your people to advance your kingdom here. And we thank you for the cross. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to connect with you. Visit us at HopeChapelMaui.com and let us know any way we may be able to serve you. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hope Chapel Maui. Stay up to date with all the latest. God bless you.